I'm pleased today to have another edition of our Businesses Doing Good conference call. As you know, our Businesses Doing Good uh, work here with Good Cities has to do with really trying to encourage communities of practice to develop in communities all over the country of uh, businesses that are providing a social benefit. And, uh, you know, it's almost been a year now. Last summer, it was uh, June that we were at uh, Case Western Reserve's Weatherhead School of Management, where they were holding the fourth global summit on flourishing enterprise. And uh, they defined flourishing as moving from a uh, a company that was reducing its ecological footprint by becoming more sustainable and becoming a company that was actually doing good in the communities where they are. And uh, today, uh, I'm excited to say that we have uh, Matt Wyatt, who is a partner with uh, BW Leadership. And, uh, you know, he's uh, he's been with uh, Barry Waymiller for a number of years now and is a, is a partner there. And our topic today is truly human leadership. And, uh, and Matt has a background of uh, serving over 20 years in uh, leadership as a former military officer and had the great opportunity to be with Simon Sinek uh, in Afghanistan, and uh, as they were together, uh, Simon was, uh, I think, talking with him uh, w- about the ideas of, of, uh, of truly human leadership and eventually uh, wrote a book called Leaders Eat Last. And uh, Simon and Matt later collaborated together in, in the Defense Department's uh, first TEDx conference co- showcasing those who serve others. And one of the speakers there was Bob Chapman, who is the CEO of Barry Waymiller. And I hope maybe you've gotten a chance to see the very dynamic video, the documentary, uh, Everybody Matters. And it'll give you a sense of, of what uh, Barry Waymiller has become as a company that really values their people and the communities where they are. So we want to welcome you today, Matt. Welcome to the call. Hey, thanks very much. Appreciate you having me. Uh, Matt, tell us the the story of uh, Barry Waymiller and how truly leader, uh, truly human leadership came into being. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you guys on this piece of it. You know, Barry Waymiller was started back in 1885, two enterprising Germans that came over, Mr. Barry and Mr. Waymiller. So when anyone ever calls in and says, I'd like to talk to Mr. Barry Waymiller, we know it's a sales call. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Barry and Mr. Waymiller came in over from Germany in 1885. So they were doing some manufacturing of transport kind of equipment. So they were serving the brewing industry here. They developed some bottle washers, bottle pasteurizers. And it was the first time we were pasteurizing beer to bring it out beyond the city. So a lot of the transport equipment, the bottle pasteurizers, the bottle washers were just a Barry Waymiller machine company is what it was called. And for a number of years, it pretty much stayed that way. Around the 1950s, 1960s, what they noticed was the, the brewing industry was just the major competitors, whether it was Miller or Anheuser-Busch, one of those. And it was a little incestuous. The, they were kind of beating up on each other. And Barry Wehmiller was a small machine shop just servicing the brewing industry pretty much. Bob Chapman's father was their CFO. The company really ran into hard times, and, and Bob Chapman's father was able to acquire a large portion of the shares, privately held company. And uh, when Bob's father passed away unexpectedly, Bob was, I think, 27 or 28 years old and took over the company, had an MBA from Michigan, and did very typical kind of business pieces. Uh, he did a little work at PwC, 
And Bob kind of turned that business around using very kind of standard techniques, standard business practices, and turned about an $18 million revenue kind of business into around 50 or $60 million and then realized that they were so vested in just one industry from a business model perspective, it was a little dangerous. And they realized that a lot of the brewing industry, it actually wasn't growing. The reason machines and parts were being purchased was because the brewing industry was competed against each other. But as smaller breweries were purchased up, this is around the 80s, that it was going to be more and more difficult. And so Bob started looking at how do we do some acquisitions? Uh, and we don't have any money, but how do we start doing acquisitions to diversify the the business space. What was fascinating is when you don't have a lot of money, you tend to buy stuff that's broken or that other people don't see value and that needs to be fixed. And so became really good at turning around businesses based on a lot of very standard kind of business practice, uh, hard skills. Started back about 1987. Today, we're about, a, I think we're just over our 100th acquisition. We've never sold any of the acquisitions. We don't fire any of the leadership team. We don't change out the people. Uh, we take on all the debt, all the liability, all the warranty claims. When we sign on the, on the dotted line, when we sign for that, those people are our people. And we've become at least known for turning around both the business and the culture and us looking at those two pieces as not in uh, – they're not in tension, but one feeds the other. Uh, you know, you, you've heard something like, I don't know, and maybe it was Peter Drucker who said, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I would the, – the positive corollary is that is – uh, culture feeds strategy. It's breakfast, right? That's how you actually get to what that strategy is. We do that through culture. And so we got a lot of attention, uh, attention on Barry Waymiller because we were doing these business turnarounds and the culture turnaround and co companies were coming to us. The organization was coming to us and saying from external companies saying, Hey, can we hear a little bit more about how you actually do that work? And our work specifically is not only leadership training, the behavioral training, but it's also on the system side. So when you think about the work, the job that you do, uh, we use the tools of Lean. Some people might use the tools of Six Sigma. We don't call it Lean because there's some marketing issues with that uh, to begin with. And we don't go after efficiencies. We go after removal of frustration. Now, efficiencies and those type of things result. But that's the work that we do is in behavior change and, and systems change. And we had so many people asking us, hey, can you share with us? It's the reason why we launched Barry Waymiller Leadership Institute was to serve the outside world. Uh, but rather than launching it as a nonprofit, we launched it as a, a it's, not non, it's not nonprofit or for-profit, it's just for good. Um, at the end of the year, any profits we make, we're trying to return those and services to organizations that can't afford our market rates. And so that's kind of uh, the piece that brings me here today chatting with you all is the work that we do is helping external organizations think about their people and their business a little differently. Um, we literally look at people are not in your control. They don't report to you. They're literally in your span of care. And how are we showing up and believing that the way we treat someone while they're in your span of care at work is how they're going to treat others. And so when we think about what's a powerful force of good in society today it's where you're spending the majority of your time, and that's in your where you where you go to work. Wow, Matt, that's that's really exciting. Uh, you've given us a great overview of uh, of kind of the history, but also a little bit of the philosophy. And uh, I want to just uh, expand on the philosophy part of things now, and, and looking at at the way in which your leadership uh, institute is really helping to develop this in the companies and the leaders that you work with. And, uh, and, and the first thing I, I guess I, I come to when, 
when you all talk about truly human leadership and that everybody matters, one of the things I was struck with in the documentary was the fact that Bob Chapman actually was was uh, was someone who he'd gone he was he was at his his church and he heard his pastor give a sermon I think on being created in the image of God and he began to think about that in terms of the the great potential that every person has within a company. Can you tell us some stories about how this philosophy or even theology really is being lived out in the Barry Waymiller family of companies and beyond and perhaps some of the companies that you're working with in your leadership institute? Yeah, sure. I, I think probably the important piece to start off with is, you know, Bob is a um, Bob is a person of faith. The language that we use is not necessarily, mm-hmm. and that people will come okay. to us afterwards and say, oh my gosh, that's that's really, you know, is it based on this faith? Is it based on this? It, it, the language is agnostic. Um, the idea is we, we care for people. Like your job as a leader is to show up and protect and to serve the people in your span of care. Now, Bob will use some language and he'll use inflection points through church. I might use stories about my military background, but the language we use is very agnostic. So I'll give you an example, though, about how this plays out in a business and then how it ends up being a great business play afterwards. In other words, the dollars and cents and the, 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 the ROI, if you will, even though it's kind of harsh talk that, talk that we wouldn't uh, proclaim. In the 08-09 downturn, um, one of our, we thought, very women thought, well, we're just going to be just fine um, from a, from an overall diverse business perspective. And I guess I should have mentioned, you know, Barry Waymiller, we make, right now we make all the things you might see in a grocery store. So if you walk through I don't know, a super Walmart or a Whole Foods, it's really tough for you to pick any product off of any shelf and it not be touched by a Barry Waymiller machine. Uh, 95% of all the cardboard in North America is made on one of our machines. Um, and yeah. so if you're just a huge Amazon prime person, every piece of that cardboard is probably made on one of our machines. Um, we make the robot head at the Amazon factories that grab the products you're ordering. Um, if you're walking down the grocery store and you grab a can, a soda can, about 90% of every can is seamed put together on one of our machines. And so we're a business to business. We also do some insurance. We do uh, engineering and IT consulting as well. And some, obviously some leadership consulting. So the company is pretty diverse. It has a lot of different pieces. And during the 08, 09, or 08, 09 downturn, one of our organizations that makes really, really big machines, and we thought everything's going to be just fine. We're a private company. About the Chapman family owns about 65% of the shares. There's a number of us inside the company that are shareholders. And then we have some outside investors as well. But it's a private company. So the economic downturn comes and Overall, we think this is going to be just fine. We'll be able to survive this. It's a couple of years, but uh, our profits will dip, obviously, and those type of things will be fine. And then one of our divisions that makes really large machines started to get cancellation of back order. And that's significant to us because there's a pretty hefty penalty for a company when they say we're canceling that order uh, because we put it on the books. We started to buy the parts. When you cancel it, the penalty is usually so much so that you, you just don't cancel and when the cancellation started to come in, we realized, well, this, this portion of the business is not going to survive. So if you think about, for Barry Waymiller, we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. We, we, we build great people who do extraordinary things. But if we're thinking about that as before I make a machine, before I'm a product or service, our whole reason for being is we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. 
if that's the case, and this is where Bob looks at, you know, being in church or everyone's, everyone is someone's precious child. Well, then you, if everyone's precious child and we're a family, then you don't just let people go. You literally don't hire them. You adopt them. And if financial times in your family get a little tough, you don't just say, okay, look, I, we got four kids, but uh, two of you've got to go now because we just can't afford you at the lifestyle that we want. And so using, I know it sounds silly, but using that same rubric or thought process, it became, and the statement was rather than one group of people having to suffer a lot, in other words, lose their jobs, be laid off, et cetera, rather than one group suffering a lot, we should all suffer a little. And so the idea was that we're all going to take a month of unpaid vacation. And that way it brought the expenses down the way we could carry this business through the tough time. What was fascinating about that decision was it's always nice to have these kind of altruistic statements on a website, but are you using them as a filter through which you're making decisions? And if the answer is yes, then can you link it back and say, okay, when's the last time you made that decision based on that? This is a time where we made that decision to say, we're all going to suffer a little bit. And by suffer, I mean, we're all going to take a pay cut. And the reason we're going to take a pay cut is we're just going to be unpaid. However, we're not even going to structure it. We're going to say, you get to take that vacation whenever you want. You can take however many days you want. Uh, you can figure it out, whatever. And everybody, a lot of people were thinking, well, that's not going to work out. It'll be really chaotic. It was fascinating to see the empathy that happened. People that, that were in a better financial situation were able to gift some of their days to say, I'll take even more vacation days and give you my work because I know you're hurting right now or you need, the, uh, you need the funding or whatever's going on in your life. So you started to see people have an em- empathy on that. We created um, some social media sites for people to share what they were doing on their extra days off or their extra week off of a vacation that was, that was unpaid. And the empathy that was created through the organization, it wasn't just the companies asking for this. It was a system that we could help each other. And I think that's a, a powerful piece where people were able to say, yeah, I'll take this cut to help someone so they don't have to lose their job. Right? It's a natural human condition that we want to care for one another. Um, during this time, we suspended the, uh, the 401k match. And so when we came out of the recession, one of the pieces we did returned people's vacations, obviously, but also returned and back paid the 401k suspension. So it wasn't just for a year you didn't get 401k matching. We went back as the company rebounded, went back and said, okay, now we're going to pay back the money that should have been in there uh, when, uh, during the economic downturn. What's fascinating about this is for people who might have been naysayers about the culture or, look, it's just a company, you want to talk about converting people when you make a decision like that. Um, and when compared to our peer group, uh, we rebounded much faster than any other organization did because we didn't go through and lay off people. We didn't have to do the rehiring. We didn't have to do the retraining. We kept the same people, tr- found work that we could employ. We did, a lot of, we did a lot of cleaning. We did a lot of painting of lines on our factory floors. We kept people employed. And the rebound effect from a business piece, if you don't even care about people, from a business piece, it made a heck of a lot more sense when you saw how fast we rebounded. Sorry to keep that as such a long answer, Gwen. You got me going on a, on a passionate topic. Oh, you know what? I think what you just did is beautiful because you wove in a number of, of wonderful stories about how people are, are being valued. And, and really, I like this notion that um, even though you've become really large, I mean, how, how many employees are in the BW family these days? Yeah, thanks for asking. It's 12,000 around the world, probably 200, 220 plus locations uh, 
Germany, Italy, pretty much anywhere in Europe we're in, uh, to include Eastern Europe in some areas there, uh, a little bit in India. Uh, the only place we're probably not, don't have a pretty heavy presence would be in Asia, and we are in talks uh, doing the work with a Chinese company, and so we're all around the world. So uh, to me, this, this notion of, of uh, seeing every employee as a precious child and as a part of the BW family, I mean, that's a cultural statement right there, and I love this notion that uh, people were willing to make sacrifices. So what you're saying is everyone was asked to take a month of layoff uh, that was flexible, uh, but it was a layoff uh, that, that they could treat flexibly uh, during these difficult times so that people suffered uh, equitably. And, and for those who uh, really needed the income, and, and there perhaps were some who uh, were at a different stage of life, uh, they were able to uh, take someone else's layoff time so that the other person could work for two weeks and get paid? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, let's just say, let's say for an example, if you're contracted yeah. with an organization, you're here working at Barry Waymiller, and, okay, you have two weeks of vacation a year, um, yeah. suddenly you have one month of vacation, and it's unpaid, and you can choose when to take it. So if you want to take a day a week, fine. You want to take two weeks here, two weeks there, fine. Yeah, if we're going to ask you to sacrifice, you're going to at least get to choose how that works in your schedule. And so we mm -hmm. did that, and then people started to share. The empathy that was created from this was mm -hmm. was really profound. And I think I'd, I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't give you the, the 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 other example that works with this philosophy. So I was a I was a military officer, and so one of my jobs is I ran boot camp for one of the one of the armed services. And so I'm the mm -hmm. I'm a basic training boot camp commander. I can remember talking to all my drill sergeants and asking them, "Hey, give me some language what you think of our new recruits." Right? And they would have all this language. They're 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 crazy. They're idiots. Whatever. Right? Because they don't. They don't know the military way yet. And we had the same conversation. I said, you know, they are someone's son, daughter, brother, sister, mom, or dad. I want you to think of your kids because that's the kind of love that's gone into them. Every day we show up as leaders and we're trying to build character and mold them into members of the U.S. military. But it's not a different philosophy of leadership. The philosophy of leadership is you show up to protect and to serve and to give all the tools, all the possibilities. And when times are rough, this is why we get so upset when we see people who have taken a golden parachute as the organization falters and people are laid off and their, their homes are, are foreclosed on and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. And yet the leader walks away making some really significant amount of money. They violated the basic code of leadership that we dating back into our ancestral times of the leader's job is to go first to protect and to serve. That's, that's a beautiful piece because, uh, and, and I watched your video as well, and, and uh, you told that story in your TEDx talk, and I, I just, uh, I'm, I'm really always impressed with people who begin to think more about uh, people and, and uh, perhaps the family background that they've come from and their willingness to serve our country or to serve your company, and, uh, and how we need to value that kind of a commitment that a person makes. And I think that's what your stories really speak loudly uh, to, to, uh, to tell us about. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about a lot of the things that I'm seeing there with the Everybody Matters approach. And I'm, I'm wondering if folks want to learn more about uh, the uh, Barry Waymiller Leadership Institute and what you all have to offer, where would they find that? 
Yeah, I, uh, I want to be gentle on the, on the, on the piece here because I think it's always trying to have a great give for all of you. Probably the easiest place that this would be influential in your own organization so you could do like a lunch and learn or have a discussion amongst mm-hmm. your leadership team and then talk about this. This is nothing to sell you. Um, we did a documentary featuring Raj Sisodia. He's our co-author of our book. He's also the person that wrote uh, The Whole Food Story, Conscious Capitalism Movement with John Mackey. He's a fantastic, he's a professor at a Babson, originally from India, just a, an unbelievable prince of a man. He's featured in, as Simon Sinek is featured in, and Bob Chapman and a few of us. And it's a documentary showing some street footage of just people and their jobs and leadership and thinking about this as a philosophy and how it actually works. That documentary, you can look it up. It's just type in Everybody Matters. Go to YouTube, type in Everybody Matters documentary. It'll come up on YouTube. You can grab it for free. There's no product placement. There's none of that kind of stuff. You can bring it into any organization you are, watch it with your team, and then have a discussion on, is that our organization? How do we think about that? Are we building leaders like this? And we found it to be really, really effective in moving some of this dialogue and discussion about what is the places of work. Um, But literally, the definition of company is a collection of people. And so when you think about company and family and the amount of time that we spend in the working world, how are we showing up to do something more than just be about the bottom line? And when we do that, Mm. the bottom line gets better. That's what's fascinating. Um, (laughs) I know I didn't mention this piece, but if you're just after the money, the the fascinating piece is, uh, as an example, Barry Waymiller, since 1987 was our first acquisition, and we've had an average annual revenue increase of about 18%. uh, Share price increase right around 15, 16%. So if you compare that to the gold standard of investing at Berkshire Hathaway firm with Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. uh, we're about 1% higher. And we're not doing layoffs. Wow. We're not pulling the lever. We do not chase cheap labor. Uh, the majority of companies where we buy them is where they produce. So Italy, the United States, one of our most profitable organizations is up in, uh, in the Northwoods of Wisconsin. Um, so we're not chasing wow. cheap labor. We're not trying to pull levers on laying people off here and there. Um, we're a standard U.S. company that doesn't make something sexy like a Google or a Ben and Jerry's ice cream. We're in a very competitive market. And we do that by one of our advantages is we really believe in people and put a lot of time and effort and energy into them. And so mm. I'm sorry, Glenn, I just, I didn't want it to make, be a sales pitch kind of piece, but that's an easy give that anyone on, on the line right now can go back to the organization and grab and really have a great discussion with their group. And if you're interested in doing something with the leadership Institute, um, you can just uh, search for BW. Leadership Institute, and we'll come up, and if you'd like, we can have a chat about uh, some of the work that we do, um, That and then we can chat about that piece of it. We're doing work with the world's largest airline. Uh, we work with NFL teams. We work with public and private companies, retail, wholesale, kind of all over the gamut of this stuff. Um, yeah, you know, uh, one thing I just want to mention to everyone on the line today is that in the invitation that was sent for this call, I put a, a – uh, a hot link in there that you can just go right to that video. So uh, in the last paragraph of that, I said, uh, you may want to watch this video on the story of Barry Waymiller, Inc. And uh, all you do is if you click on that link, it'll take you right to that video so you get a chance to see it. And I believe, just like he, uh, just like Matt just shared, it, it is something of great value. Matt, can you uh, tell us one short story, if you could, about the kind of community impact that's being had outside the walls. One of the things I'm impressed with is that when Barry Moymiller buys a company in a small town, 
they don't, you know, they, they really try to keep everyone on board and perhaps even grow the company right where it is, which is a, a beginning benefit right for that town immediately and very important to that city or town. Can you talk a little bit more about the benefit to the local community? Yeah, I think when we look at, I know we work with a lot of organizations, and they, and this is not a knock on charitable contributions. I think that that's a powerful piece of this. But a lot of mm-hmm. times organizations will discuss, this is the amount of money we give to a local food bank, or this is the amount of right. money we give in a scholarship, or, or this kind of thing. And we firmly believe that the first and greatest act of, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't even call it charity, I would just call it responsibility, for the society is how are you treating the people in your span of care? How are you creating a sustainable business model uh, that allows a place where people can share their gifts and talents and have a future to grow? Uh, so that's number one. That is the most important piece that a business can do is to stay in business and offer that, that ability for those people. In some of our locations, we'll employ 600 out of the 1,500-person town. So we recognize this is not about a business. This is not about a name or a machine. This is about an entire town livelihood. And so we think about it from that perspective. Um, for a lot of our, our organizations, and I'll mention the one in Phillips, Wisconsin, we have a, a plant up there. And when we purchased them, I think back in 04, part of their manufacturer was in Brazil. Our largest client at the time said, you need to cut your product cost back to us about 50%. Um, and so we did that not only by using the tools of Lean, but really by enlisting the help of the people that were closest to the work. And so a lot of that's behavioral training. A lot of that is, without a doubt, a systems piece for how are we sourcing the great innovative ideas. And we actually brought manufacturing back from Brazil uh, and brought it back in-house to um, up in the north woods of Wisconsin, and where today is one of our most profitable divisions. Um, and so I think that's a good example of how do we look at mm. the contribution we make in society. Well, the first thing you do is you treat people really, really well. So they go home and they really enjoy being a parent right, or being a spouse or being a partner, whatever that might be. Wow. That's so exciting. This is Amy Sherman. Uh, I work for the Sackmore Institute and I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, thank you, Matt, for giving us your time today. Uh, I, have a two part, I have a two-part question. Um, could you talk about, uh, or could you give a, could you give a, a very sort of granular, practical example of how the truly uh, human leadership um, philosophy uh, sort of works itself out um, for two different sort of types of workers within your companies? Um, one would be sort of the blue collar worker, you know, on a manufacturing uh, floor, uh, oftentimes. Uh, folks in those jobs can just sort of feel like a, a cog in a wheel, <laughs> uh, you know. Um, and, and, uh, and and then another class of worker would be what I call the the, the person in the cubicle land. Uh, so they're the they're white collar workers, but they're but they don't have a lot of power. They're not managers of lots of things, but they're kind of there in cubicle land, and they can they can feel a little alienated from their work because they just feel like, well, I just sort of push paper around and, you know, I don't actually make any decisions. And um, so for those two different kinds of workers, could you give an example of um, how basically this philosophy um, makes the job uh, less alienating and uh, and more fulfilling for, for those two different kinds of workers? Thank you. Yeah, great question. Thank you for that. I, and let's start with... Um, 
Let's start with a non sequitur here and then work our way back into this. This is a great question. I'll make this kind of quick, but let's think about the lost luggage counter at an airline. So all of us are probably flown on an aircraft. And when, if we're checking our bags and the luggage is not there, we go into a small little area that says some kind of, I don't know, customer support for lost bags. And there's a person working there at that counter. That person's job sucks. No amount of, let me tell you how, let me tell you about truly human leadership. Let me tell you about how much I care for you. They are the face of failure for an entire organization. No one in on this call, myself included, has ever walked in to a lost luggage counter person and said, hey, I checked two bags and I got two bags out. Great job. They, they literally interact with people who are angry all day long. The reason I bring that up is how are we thinking about the actual work that people are going through? And no amount of you're doing a great job, keep up the great work, takes the place of you are the face of failure for an organization. And here's what's the really bad part of this for a lost luggage counter. You can't do anything about it. All you can do is tell them, yep, you're right. The bag is lost or, and or the bag is in some other location. I don't know where it is. And here's a voucher for a hotel room or something. Or here's free toothbrush. How are we giving people the opportunity to have a say in the future of their work? The way this comes out for truly human leadership to whether it's a blue-collar worker in the manufacturing or it's in cubicle land, what's the disciplined way that we have of listening to people so that they can have an actual say in their job? In both examples that you listed was in both of those jobs, there's some frustration. So you mentioned cubicle land that I actually don't get to make the decisions that I don't actually see what's happening. I might be just be pushing paper around. No one wants to do that job. One of the first things that we do, and this is a real big move diverging from what most organizations will do. So if you think about a play pattern of how you build culture, one is, what are we anchoring this all on? What's the whole purpose of being? For us, it's, we may discuss, by the way, we touch a lot of people. Great. And we have some values that's like any organization would. Talking about treating people superbly, paying them fairly, talking about leadership builds trust. It's the usual stuff. There's no different proprietary kind of language there. From that statement, though, the first thing we do is not transmit. We don't go into an organization and say, hey, everyone, here's how it's going to work now. We go in and we just listen. A huge portion of our leadership training is on listening. I know that it's a little ironic since I'm doing a lot of talking on this radio show, but it truly is, believe me. Um, We go in with this piece and we'll sit and do focus group listening sessions. We're not running surveys. We're doing focus group listening sessions of anyone who wants to participate of a new acquisition. And we'll say, hey, this is the kind of stuff that we believe in. Can you tell me a good news story of where this organization, this new acquisition, as an example, where does that exist? Now, you'll hear great stories because you want to start in the positive. You'll hear great stories, both from people in cubicle land and blue-collar manufacturing. Okay, fantastic. We're writing those down. We're taking those down. And then we transition into, if this is what we say we're about – um, where, where are the gaps? Where are we not living this day to day? This is where we start to source the frustrations that you mentioned out of cubicle land. We start to source the frustration to a blue collar manufacturing person who says, all of my stuff I get, it's all last minute rush. It's always a fire drill. And then I'm constantly doing new setups on my machine and the parts are just sitting there for weeks afterwards. And then I've got somebody saying, no, this is wrong. And I don't have the right tools to do my job or I don't have the right safety equipment or the cage. The parts cage is actually locked up because we don't trust our own workers. 
you start to source all those frustrations. And then we're using the tools of both lean and leadership training. We just start to make incremental changes. And the beginning, the changes are really, really small because you're just buying trust. And so the first change we'll make is if there are brake bells in the manufacturing location, those things, we rip those out right away. People shouldn't be treated like animals. So the first thing you go is you don't get the brake bells. If phones are in the break room and they're locked up, all the locks come off. Um, spare parts cages, all the locks come off. If you're in cubicle land, what does a winning day look like for you? I don't know. I'm in the accounts receivable. I come in here and I work for eight hours. How would you design your work to know that you were winning? Let's have that conversation. So we're changing a lot of the work. I know it's a longer answer, but I just, for a lot of people, they think, oh, it's all about the behaviors. It is, but the structure and the system and the work that people are doing influences their behaviors to a large degree. And so we're using some tools to specifically change the work and have a disciplined way to say, how would you remove the frustration in your work? And then doing that through those processes. So Matt, what you're, what you're telling us about, which I really like here is that you're, you're teaching management at every level to ask good questions and to help people listen. Uh, I want to just uh, say on a side here that, that that's something that good cities really values. We are, we're a, a group that does a lot with volunteer engagement all over the country uh, to help volunteers address critical issues in cities. And so first we have to find out um, what, what some of the local leaders, the grass tops leaders, uh, believe are some of the most important issues to be addressed and, and what they might do to solve them. And so uh, having a good listening process is important in, in the corporate world. It's also important among volunteers. If you really want people to buy in, you, you have to start with, uh, with what those folks will tell us about what would make their job more meaningful and uh, so critical. So do you have a program within, co- within the company you, you know, that you're leading there within, uh, you know, w- within the company there at Barry Waymiller that you're helping folks become good listeners to ask good yeah. questions? Yeah, exactly. It's part of our leadership curriculum. So there's a bedrock piece of it. Uh, the listening skill is woven in through all of our, all of our leadership training. And so when you think about all of us who are on this call today, we probably received some type of training in presentation. Maybe in, mm-hmm. in our high school or our university, we did speech, we did debate. It's, when you think about our own professional education, the vast majority of it is in the transmit mode. And if you want people mm-hmm. to feel valued and you want to have an innovative organization, um, a lean organization, a much faster organization, a team that builds trust, all of those kind of pieces. Um, listening is a huge, huge skill set for leadership. We go around the world in one of our leadership training, and even if I'm just doing keynotes, I'll ask the question of any audience, what do great leaders do? And I'll spend some time and I'll just source from the audience, I just want the behaviors. And we'll get 50, 60 behaviors. Here's a great leader. Here's a great leader. Always, always, always in the top three or four are listening and building trust. And that's regardless of what group I'm talking to, whether it's millennials, baby boomers, war babies, whether it's in South Africa and Prague, it doesn't matter. It's always the exact same list. What's fascinating is on that list is never great leaders tell people what to do. Great leaders Mm. give advice. Never shows up. Not arguing if people would say, no, 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 great leaders do that. Okay. Never shows up when sourced from any leaders, any group. Fascinating. So listening is a huge piece of ours. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Uh, Amy, are you feeling like uh, this is getting at, at your question, or did you have a follow-up? 
Um, I'd love him to say uh, you gave some really practical things about the blue-collar workers. Um, what would be a way in which you, quote-unquote, remake the work of the, of the guy in cubicle land to, to make it less alienating? Sure. So we had, uh, we had a group in South Carolina, and they were um, a finance group. And so when you think about a finance group that just comes to work and they're spending an amount of time, and it's a, it's a team, how do you know that you're actually making progress? First of all, it's probably frustrating. There's all kinds of frustrating pieces about where, what, what paperwork goes to where for what approval. And they probably are pretty close to the work that they have some really great ideas on how they would streamline it. So part of our work on this is to say, how, first of all, how do you know what a winning day is? Well, I don't. This is what my job is. I bet you have some ideas on what frustrates you. And this is a, I know this is a slight thing, but it's so important. If you ask people, how, what kind of ideas do you have to make your job more efficient? The corollary of that and underlying this, you are subconsciously telling people you are inefficient or your work is inefficient or you're doing work that's inefficient. Mm-hmm. If you ask people, how can you have ideas to be um, less wasteful, you are literally telling people you are a wasteful person. Every single time, if you ask a person, what frustrates you in your job, you will get some answers. And oftentimes, if we remove those frustrations, we're actually making the work more efficient, more satisfying, and less wasteful. So one piece is, how are we coming into the conversation by saying, what frustrates you? A big part of this, and so in a very granular level, um, when we had a finance department, you really couldn't define what, what was winning. It was as if you were just winning the basketball court every day. You never kept score. You just played basketball. I, I don't know whether we're winning, we're losing. My job is to just grab a ball here and pass it over here. And so one of the things we did was we talked about, okay, well, what does average work look like? Well, that's interesting because average work really changes. If I have a huge, huge package, that might take all day. And so I only get one client or one package done versus some days I'll get 10 done. Okay, so is it a time piece? Is it a, is it a specific package that we should be getting done? And we worked with that team to say, what does, what does a good day's work in this job, what does it look like at the end of it? Defining that's really important because then people know whether they're winning or not. The fascinating piece about this is when you start to define that part of it, so specifically for CubeLand, if you're an accounts receivable, okay, I've defined that a good day's work is, I've worked on whatever packages, I've done three of those or I've done 10 of these. What happens when, that, when you define that at that granular level is the empathy starts to result. So now I can incentivize based on that. Now the team gets incentivized. Now it's not just one person. But as the team wins, everyone wins. So now what I find is people that might say, hey, I'm way ahead for today. I've actually already made my goal for today. Who else needs help? I do. I've got a really tricky one. And so now I start to build empathy around these teams. So at a very granular level, figure out what's frustrating people, start to remove those obstacles, and define what winning is. Very helpful. Uh, Yeah, great. Thank you. Who's the next? Okay, yes, yeah. Who's the next person who might have a question? Uh, give us your name and where you're from. Hi, this is Mary Kay Zinowitz from Minneapolis. And uh, thanks, uh, Matt. I'm enjoying this conversation uh, a lot, listening to you and the questions, too. Um, I'm wondering how you approach this uh, concept of worth equals how much you get paid, and uh, kind of piggybacking on the, the last question uh, with a comment. You know, I, I love this concept of 
everybody matters because I truly believe that everybody does. And I struggle when I read and hear language that of, you know, low-paying jobs, low-level jobs. I, I, it just makes me cringe because I think who wants a low-level job and who wants a low-paying job? But every job matters to an mm-hmm. organization. And um, the, the reason I bring up this language is because what type of messages do we send and who's going to be raising their hands to say, oh, I want that low-level job, I want that low-paying job, or who as a parent would say, hey, kid, you want to go get that low-level job. Right, uh, right. But they all have purpose and they matter. And uh, so my question is, is how do you address that uh, piece that... I, I think that it's a societal message of you only matter if you make a lot of money. Yep, yep. Especially in our society, right? We're, we're very, we are, we just are a very materialistic society. Um, and so, right. how do we, how do we keep our? So, so a couple of thoughts. So, thanks for the question. A couple of thoughts. Number one, language matters. And so, you'll hear me when I talk. You'll notice that I don't use the word manager. You manage programs, you manage spreadsheets, you manage projects, you do not manage people. No one ever says, you know what I really need today? I need to be bossed around. I Actually, what I really <laughs> like is I'd like to be supervised or I'd like to be managed. Let me tell you who does not like to be bossed, supervised, <laughs> managed. My wife, my two young boys. They do not. Neither does anybody. Right? Even in the military, you don't like that. You want to be listened to. You want to be coached, mentored, led. Anyone in Barry Way Miller, if you're in a people um, if you have direct reports, I'm using language that the industry might use. If I have direct reports, my title is leader. That's it. We never use the title manager unless that person is managing a project or a program. We never use the term higher or lower. Our org chart is reversed, so leaders are at the bottom. Um, Frontline leaders are at the top, and we'll say that very specifically. We don't say lower-level leaders because they are not lower-level they're, they're, they're not a different phylum genus species. If anybody on the lines of biology major, I know I screwed that up, but they're not a different genetic makeup. They're a human being. And so we don't use language of lower or higher. However, that doesn't get us into what's the value of the job the person is doing. So in our kind of guiding principles of leadership, we'll say pay people fairly and treat them superbly, which uh-huh. means – you need to be paid at the market rate for what that job and the value that you bring. And if that means that your job that you're doing with Barry Waymiller is an entry-level position, you're brand new out of college and you're a brand new, let's call it um, a manufacturing, uh, maybe you're one of the people doing manufacturing on one of our production lines. The title is what the title is, and the market rate for the job, we're going to be very transparent to say, Here's the location you're in. You're in many, we have some companies in Minneapolis. So you're in Minneapolis. Here's what a manufacturing line leader pays as per these studies. This is what our, our pay will be. Now you'll be treated superbly, um, but we'll be very transparent. It becomes interesting when we're doing acquisitions because people will say, I want to know, am I going to have a job? And our response will be, you will have a job. You may have to reinvent yourself and you may have to do something differently because your job may be repurposed based on the fact that you were doing a job that actually wasn't adding value. You will have an opportunity to do that. Um, but the pay is something, and I'll just be very transparent. I think as an organization, of course, we struggle with that as well. 
Um, there are times that people feel like, why well, should be pay, being paid way much more than I am? And we're always trying to come back to what's the market rate for that position? And how do we pay you in that market range to be very fair to you and treat you superbly to where it's so transparent that if you decide I'm leaving based on the pay, you're still very happy with how you're treated um, while you're here in our span of care. Thanks. Very helpful. Yeah, thanks, Matt. That's very helpful. I like the fact that you're really thinking carefully about the use of language and uh, what is going to help people feel as though that they're they're being treated superbly uh, in whatever position they're in. Uh, Who's next? Give us your name and where you're from. Hey, Matt, it's uh, Scott Scott Myers from Akron, Ohio. And uh, really just a comment uh, more than a question. Uh, Love everything uh, that you're doing. Uh, Been working at uh, our business for us to... um, live out all those things that you've talked about. I've imagined them. So it's uh, very encouraging to see somebody, uh, you know, executing well and uh, impacting people's lives the way you are. So thank you. Yeah, well, first of all, go Cavs. I spent a lot of time in Akron because my in-laws are, uh, are from there, and we have uh, one of our facilities, uh, New Mexico Angeles, uh, has two facilities there in Akron. So appreciate the comments. Thank you. Probably one last piece on the, I was just thinking about the one last piece on the the pay and how do we equate work to how much we get paid. I, I would not say that, that Barry Waymiller is the top payer of, of any organization. In fact, I know that we're not at the top of the marketplace for a lot of jobs. Our turnover is extremely low, exceedingly low um, because of how we treat people. Our benefits are not the best. Our pay is not the best, but the way you're treated here is is fantastic. What's interesting and how that ends up being a business case, a lot of times, and we have a we have an engineering consulting group called Design Group, uh, and we hire in lots of really just smart and talented engineers. And there are a lot of times when they design a new line for an organization, whether it be Pepsi or Anheuser-Busch or a dog food company or whatever it might be, when they're designing a production line for an organization, a lot of times that organization they're working for is willing to offer them a lot more money to come on full-time. And we do lose some engineers um, to those companies. How you treat a person when they've decided to leave is so important. Like for us, you don't give up on them just because they're, we say we made success by the way we get to the lives of people, not about Barry Waymiller employees, their families, but about people. If they're making the decision to leave, man, how are we supporting you? And how have we touched your lives in a positive way while you were here in our span of care? What's fascinating is when it comes time to recommending the next project, who should do the design on that? Those employees that have left us to other clients, almost all the time, they're recommending us back into the work that they're doing now. And so from just a business piece, if you don't even care about people, like what's the angle that says what's the return on investment of being nice to people? Um, it, it constantly plays back to us. Whether you want to call that karma or just good business, whatever you want to call it, there is an angle there that says how you treat people when they're leaving is really a lot about how, how you are as a company, your character. I did, again, Matt, this is uh, Scott again from Akron. Yeah. How often do those people uh, boomerang and come back after a while? That's a good question. I, I'll be honest with you, I don't know the answer to that question. I think it would depend on what, what organization we're talking about, what area. I think for a design group, I think that I don't know what the percentage would be. I know it happens. I don't think it happens a lot, 
I think when people move on into that other job, they're pretty happy in coming out of it. I have seen them come back after they've had some other experience working in other areas or they start their own business. And then later on, they're, when they're looking to be acquired, they're calling Barry Waymiller. I don't have an exact percentage, sorry. So, and okay. I, this is Mary Kagan. and I just kind of want to chime in here. Uh, what what uh, you said, Matt, about the uh, referral business that comes through these uh, former employees, you know, that's, that is the largest return. You know, coming yep. back is not, not necessarily a big win. A big win is having a, uh, perpetu- uh, a person who perpetuates uh, the goodwill of that business throughout their, their life cycle. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think for us, the acquisitions has been interesting because, I mean, Bob is a, I think Bob does a lot of things. Bob's a guy where, um, you know, there are some people that need to really be convinced and there needs to be a lot of data. And Bob's a guy that says, I think if you eat more vegetables and you eat smaller meals and you go to the gym or you walk a lot, you probably are going to be healthier and you lose weight. I, he just believes that piece. That he doesn't need a whole bunch of data. It's the same piece, right? He believes that if we treat our people superbly, one, he has a moral obligation to do so. And the people we start to attract also, you attract people, like-minded people, when you put that out in the world. You say, this is what we believe. Okay, I want to be a part of that. There's also a piece where he recognizes, and it's just good business. There are times now that we're doing acquisitions, and we're the sole suitor. It's a family company. They're doing manufacturing. They've been in business for a long time, even overseas. And the only person they're calling is Barry Waymiller. And they're saying, I'm less interested in what the sale price is, and I'm more interested in knowing that what I have built, what I've spent my life building will go on and into something great. And so I want my people taken care of. And so let's figure out a price that works. And now we're in conversations and we're not at the courtroom. We're not trying to figure out how can we steal this at an auction block. We're being asked to, to acquire the business. That's a fantastic position to be in that most companies would love to be there. Um, for the leadership institute, when we put out a job posting, We'll have hundreds, if not thousands of people. Our, our difficulty is combing through all the applicants. That's a great position to be in from a business piece. And we didn't start out saying, here's how we want to treat people nicely and then manipulate that message and put out press releases so that we can benefit from it. It's just a byproduct. I'd like to add, too, with that, um, that based on what you just said, Matt, that um, dollar amount, the dollar amount, whether it's your worth in your contributions. And what I was getting at with that um, question of mine is how do you get that? Well, you know, how do you evaluate job worth and at the dollars is the money isn't really what brings worth. And we, we, we sometimes, you know, hear that um, you've given some uh, real uh, case studies of, of how that happens with your business acquisitions, that um, dollar value isn't necessarily the driving factor of a company uh, merging with you. What I'm suggesting is that we all get better in our language um, with every job matters, and the dollar amount attached isn't where happiness comes from. It's the job itself that contributes to the whole of the product. And um, I love what you say about, you know, asking, how, asking everybody at every level to contribute to that strategy piece by sharing more about ending frustrations in their job. 
because not necessarily every employee doesn't want to um, climb the corporate ladder to be president, nor do you want every employee to have that type of a personality. So we value people at all levels. You know, that's a message I think that can't be um, uh, said enough, you know, and, and remove yeah. that low-level, uh, low-paying type of mentality because a $10 an hour job matters, and yeah. it matters to the whole. And I think, I think there's some organizations that do this really well, like Starbucks, I think, is a – Look, there's a big piece. We talk about the building of trust as a leadership behavior. Part of the building of trust is the transparency. So Starbucks has done a really nice job on this. They've come out and said, look, as our, from our business model, this is what baristas are paid. We know you don't want to be a barista. A lot of people don't want to be a barista for the rest of their lives. That's fine. How are we adding value when you're here with us in our span of care? And I'm not advocating that Starbucks is a good company, bad company. I just the transparency of it and then saying we're going to partner with a university to put this into you. So if you want to stay and, and climb the ranks and in and, and, and the levels of Starbucks and become a, an executive and do that work, great. And if you just want to be a two years and, and go on to something else, that's great too. But how are we treating you while you're here? Because the job is important. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be there. Um, it, it's interesting when you look at, well, in some of our curriculum, we'll talk about you know, the Gallup study of 155 different countries. And they found the number one determinant of happiness they thought it was going to be wealth, but then they realized over a certain amount, wealth is not a motivating factor. They thought it was going to be health, um, and then they realized people take health for granted. When we have it, we never think about it. And then when we don't have it, now we're thinking about it, but it wasn't the driver of everyday happiness. The number one determinant of happiness was a good job, defined as meaningful work among people that care about me and I care about them. Number one determinant of happiness. So whether that's $10 an hour, whether it's a lot more money an hour, um, yeah, I think it's, it, it's fascinating to think about that piece of it. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist. I'm not saying that we don't have those discussions on pay and that sometimes that's difficult and sometimes we're trying to find which should be the market rate when we're the only game in town. Um, th- those are difficult conversations. Um, but we, the other piece probably to bring up in this is we separate out performance reviews from pay raises and pay talk. So when you're having your growth conversations with your leader, those happen a number of times in a year. Those are growth conversations. We separate out pay from those. I think that's a a great place for us to just uh, come to a a close on this call today. We're just about uh, at the uh, top of the hour again here. And uh, thank you so much, Matt, and, and all of those who have been participating in today's call. We're going to have another businesses doing good call on June the 21st. I, I have an invitation out to a guest and uh, waiting to hear back on, uh, on that guest. And uh, I'll announce it as soon as I get it. You'll, you'll get another email from me to let you know what's coming. Matt, um, is there any way that folks might, might be able to get in touch with you or your organization um, uh, after this call if somebody's interested in following up? What, what can they do to get in touch with you? Yeah, of course. I think probably the easiest way is just to email info at bwleadershipinstitute.com. So that's info at bwleadershipinstitute.com. Happy to, uh, happy to provide you a bunch of free resources and give you some links to a lot of great talk. And we do some podcasts. If you want to search the Everybody Matters podcast, we showcase great leaders and organizations around the world, not just Barry Waymiller, but from Simon Sinek to Raj Sisodia to 
a whole host of friends and, and people doing some really fantastic work out there. Um, that's an easy resource for you guys to uh, to tap into. So you can contact me at info at bwleadershipinstitute.com. And if you want to hear more and just showcase the great companies and leaders around the world, uh, check out the Everybody Matters podcast. Yeah, I think it's it's exciting. You you have a rich trove of resources both at the Barry Waymiller site and at the uh, at the BW Leadership site, and I uh, want to encourage those on the call to go ahead and see those. Also, visit our Good Cities site. It's GoodCities.net. You're always welcome to come and see some of the things that we've got. We've got a lot of videos there about great things that people are doing in cities to improve their communities all over the country. Again, thanks so much to uh, Matt Wyatt of uh, BW Leadership, and I'm just uh, I'm looking forward to having an ongoing relationship with you and your work. Seems like it complements a lot of what we're doing in communities as well. And uh, Matt, thanks again for being our guest today. Not a problem. Thanks for having me, Glenn. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, this concludes our call. Thank you so much for joining us, all of you who called in today. I hope you have a wonderful day.